sound like I'm a professor. I'm sorry about that. Is that okay with you, Luke? And the angel of the church of Pergamos in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on that stone a new name written which no one knows him except him who receives it. In our letter this week we want to look at I feel like I'm really loud. Can I should I be should I be that loud? Okay, good. I want us to look at a few things. And our normal pattern is to look at the city history and then we'll look at what Christ knows, what concerns Christ and what he tells us to do about that. And that's pretty much the normal pattern. Now in Pergamos, we enter into a situation unlike the first two churches. And this situation will build to the second, or the next letter, which is to the letter of Thyatira. And you will notice, and I'll point this out, this distinct difference between the two. But what happens in Pergamos will lend itself and grow itself in the church of Thyatira. So this is a very important thing. If you ever heard the expression, we need to cut this off at the roots. Well, this is the roots, and this is where we need to focus our attention. Now, Pergamos was a, a ca- the capital of the Asian province until around... Uh, uh, 133 BC, so it had a lot of history, it had a lot of culture, it had a lot of prominence. Now, being the capital, one of its symbols was the sword. Now, the sword was uh, uh, um, uh, uh, an emblem of legal rule, and what would what would be done was uh, was that the proconsuls and the judges that held high court in Pergamos were given the authority to pass the death sentence without any appeal to a higher court. In other words, they were functioning as the Supreme Court. They therefore had the right of the sword, and the city was therefore known as the city of the sword. Now remember, I just read in the opening, this writes he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So he's obviously referring to this sort of legal binding rule that has no higher court of appeal like the court at Pergamos. But the city was known for something else, not just being a city of the sword. The city was known for its education. And guess what? It had a medical school there. I did not attend there. 
I was not my school. They worshipped, of course, Asclepius. I pronounce that poorly, sorry. The god of medicine, and remember the god of medicine had as its symbol a snake on a pole. And that snake on the pole, as we, as you would guess, was uh, given a name to the city. It get, lent itself as a name to the city, and it was called the City of the Serpent. Not serpent like we're conjuring up spirits. It's a serpent uh, indicating an ap- academic center for health and welfare. But there's more. It was not only that. It, it had uh, uh, bundled in it a religious element. And by the way, it was a quite a renowned, world-known uh, area of academia, a second perhaps only to Alexandria in terms of their library and their uh, medical school. But it had a religious center. So we had the city of the sword, that was legal. We had the center, city of education, that was the city of the serpent. And now we have the city of the altar. You see, the Pergamos was um, a highly, remember, previous capital, a highly um, uh, religious city, and they had temples devoted to the entire pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. Now, normally a city might only have one that's featured. For remember, uh, Ephesus, they really featured the great temple to the goddess Diana, and Demetrius was so upset when the people were getting saved and, and they quit buying this uh, uh, the temple trinkets with the silver on it. And so they featured one. But this city uh, worshipped them all and exalted them all, and so they, they had the temples to the whole pantheon. Now, the one place, the one individual that received the greatest worship was the emperor. And as you recall in Roman history, what the emperor did, what the Roman Caesars did, is they began to be deified, that is, proclaimed to be God, and thus it was meant to be a unifying element of all the empire to gather loyalties of its subjects so that in the case of war, we would at least have a unifying um, uh, religious element because they allowed multiple people to worship as they wanted, so they, quote, had religious freedom, unquote, as long as you also worship the emperor. And if you didn't worship the emperor, well, you were an enemy of the state. Well, obviously the Christians would not bow to the emperor, and they paid for it, right? Now, this they had a temple, and this, therefore the, 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 the city had the name the city of the altar. So we have the city of the sword, the city of the serpent, and the city of the altar, and the altar being emperor worship. Now, this will come out. Remember, he says in there, you are a place where Satan's throne is. So you can see, historically, this city had several elements that lent itself to that description. Now, when we uh, when we talk about its religious uh, uh, emphasis, it was very strict. Most people would have emperor worship one day a year where they would burn incense to the emperor on that particular day, sort of like your 4th of July or another holiday. But in this city, they burned incense daily to the emperor. So that's how that was the high priority they gave to this religious cult of emperor worship. Finally, its industry was that of making parchment, and they perfected it, and the title of the city Pergamos comes from that idea of parchment. Church history, not a lot. In fact, all we have is what we are reading today. 
So we don't have a lot, we don't have the book of Acts to give us any information. Interestingly enough, you notice that when you read the book of Acts, they didn't go to every village and city, but the gospel spread to others, other areas unmentioned in the historical record, Pergamos being one of them. All right, so let's get to the text, Christ's introduction. Look at what it says, excuse me, verse 12. And these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember, the proconsuls, that judiciary body, judiciary body, they have the authority to pronounce that, and it couldn't be appealed. And then what the, when the Lord Jesus uses this terminology, he's really saying, then my authority is not just like the authority of the of Rome or the proconsuls, but I have greater authority. The sharp two-edged sword comes out of my mouth, comes directly from my gullet. It comes directly from me speaking. You don't, I don't, I don't have to have it divulged to me from Rome and get it in a secondary way. My authority is my authority. And I therefore will give it. And, and the idea of this is a broadsword and, 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 and used for decisive moments of battle. And this is what he's, he's saying. He is greater than any of the institutions that you have, even by implication, emperor worship and also the educational system. Now for us, we believe that, don't we? We believe that Christ is superior to all others. At least we should. And a day, day like today when we have um, government sort of doing whatever they want, uh, we have injustice that doesn't seem to be uh, uh, put at bay, we have city riots and we have people tearing up streets and boarding up downtowns because of all the uh, looting that goes on. It seems as if we're in chaos. Well, our Savior still has the sword that comes out of his mouth. He still has and is the defining authority. Now, what people will say, and maybe you've said this as a Christian, is if that is true, why does there is there such chaotic evil in this world? That's an age-old question. You're not the first one to ask that. The point is simply this. Christ is on the throne. His authority is still in play. If he let his authority play out in this moment as the situation deserved, there would be no human race. But what God has done in a moment of tremendous grace, unknown to the emperor, unknown to the ancient world, that God with his great grace would allow what is called patient perseverance, and Peter says it this way, so that Every man might come to repentance. God is long-suffering. And so when you don't see the active activity of God because you want justice to be exercised, what you're really seeing is the patience of God, but justice will come. And so many have coined this phrase that the justice of God grinds slow, but it grinds fine. It does what it does to the very end. And so we have this sort of implication by the sword out of his mouth. The Romans said they had the power of life and death. Christ is saying, so do I, except mine is much more superior. Mine is from the one who entered the gates of Hades and came out victorious. It implies and cuts to the very 
heart of the believer. You see, when he presents himself to this way to this church, he's saying, I'm going to have to deal with you. And I'm going to have to say some hard things and it's going to cut. That's how it has to work. And these letters, they have, every one of them has a certain sort of edge to it. And we would be, we would be well to prepare our hearts every session to listen to what the Spirit of God has to say. Now, what does he know? Well, he starts out in the general way that he has in, in the letter to Ephesus and in the letter to, to Smyrna. He says, I know, Oida, I know, I'm cognizant, I am calculatingly aware of what you're doing. That's the general thing. And they're good works. They're done behind enemy lines. He knows that it's harder to do this stuff behind enemy lines. And it's harder to do, obviously, behind enemy lines when there's such an emphasis on emperor worship. It's hard to live as a Christian today, isn't it? Sometimes our young people and even our older ones have been affected by the barrage of criticism and disdain for somebody who names the name of Christ and lives like such. Many of us who name ourselves as Christians will immediately be blacklisted by those who are of perhaps the LGBTQ plus agenda. And we'll just say, you're a Christian, you're a hater of people. And that's leveled against us. Well, I, I actually think that's an untruth. That's a lie. Why do I know that? Because my Savior loved and saved people of that very agenda. Corinthians even says so. So here we are in a similar situation being dogged by those who are anti-Christian and yet we're called to still do the good works because Titus says you do those good works so that they might not have a reason to blaspheme the name of Christ. In other words, the words come out, but when they look at the evidence, you go, well, there's no evidence to support this claim. The claim must be false. That's what it's about. And when we look at Titus, we should do a study in Titus. The good works is the um, sine qua non. It's the evidence that ex- uh, that totally exonerates totally lifts the condemnation and criticism against the Christian. Now, according to the book, uh, to the letter uh, to Ephesus, it has to be done out of love, not out of duty. All right, moving on. Um, so we have what Christ knows, and of course, he knows that there is a, a, a necessary loyalty to his person. You hold fast to my name. You know, the Lord really loves loyalty. There is a verse in the book of Samuel, and it had to deal with Eli. And uh, it's also used in the movie Chariots of Fire, which I, I was looking at recently. And, uh, and uh, it says, he who honors me, I will honor. Now, that was said to Eli, and actually a, a moment of condemnation, because he honored his sons more than he honored God. And so God said, he who honors me, I will honor. In the movie, it was more about running the race, and that was kind of cool. But the point is this. He highly values those who are loyal to him. I want us to be an assembly that is loyal to our God. I want us to be that. I want to be that kind of man, loyal to our God. I want to be loyal when you're not looking at me. I want to be loyal when I'm all alone like I was in California the last two nights. 
I want to be loyal. I want to be faithful. And I want to be that way. Not so I can look you in the eye and say, hey, I was loyal to God, although that's helpful. I want to look my Savior in the eye and say, I gladly was loyal to you. That's what he's saying. I, God is, Jesus Christ is saying, I, I value that. He said, you did it without disowning the faith. You didn't question, right? Look at what it says. You did not deny my faith. Listen, it's hard. It's hard to have the barrage of why is God this way? What is kind of God does this kind of stuff? What kind of God do you worship anyway? He must be a fictitious invention to allow the aches and pains of life not to hurt so much. You get that mantra over and over and over. You're tempted to lay down your faith in all things that are God. And the Lord Jesus was saying, you didn't do that. Beloved, we need not to do that. We're going to take hits. We are. And we've had some casualties already. But we want to be faithful to the end. Remember what we said on Sunday. Fidelis ad mortem. Faithful to the end. Faithful to death. And that's what he means here. You didn't deny the faith. And finally, he says it this way. You did this. You maintained your spiritual integrity when... One of your own, Antipas, and we don't have a lot of history of Antipas, one of, uh, uh, one of our own was martyred right in front of you. Now there's a scholar named Sweet who says that uh, 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 Antipas was uh, a dentist. And I hate dentists because I don't like them touching my teeth. But he was a dentist, apparently. And uh, he was uh, challenged and commanded to burn incense to Caesar. He refused, and the church historians say that he was put in a bronze-like calf or container. The metal was heated up, and obviously he was he was burned to death, fried to death in that situation. Very gruesome, very demonstrative of how vicious you will be treated if you don't fall into line with emperor worship. Well, we're approaching that. We're being treated viciously, even attacked. It'll get worse, of course. And and yet, what he's calling us to do is to be faithful to the death. And he said, you did this church, you, you, you Pergamos church, even when this was happening right in front of you. That would unnerve you. That would, that would make you want to shriek back. He was killed where Satan dwells. This was happening right in the headquarters of satanic activity, whether it be this uh, uh, ivory tower of medical education or any education, whether it be the ivory tower of the judicial system, where obviously was slanted to propagate the philosophy and theology of that day, which was emperor worship, or whether it be in the in the in the throne of Satan that had as its pillar emperor worship or worship of the pantheon of gods he said this is where it's happening and i know that's where you live and i think god knows that's where you live you ever been in a situation at work where it's persecuting you and and you and no matter what no matter what you do <coughs> you are called out as a christian you are treated you are you are um uh discriminated because of that i have great news for you you are suffering for what is right. And if you suffer in that way for what is right, you are living like Christ. This is exactly how he did it. 
and you have the honor to live in a way and which is directly commensurate, collaborative with the Savior's life upon this earth. Do you remember the early church? They suffered and they got together for a prayer meeting and they said, thank you, thank you, God, that you counted us worthy to suffer for your sake. The place shook, the Spirit of God was there and they went forth and preached the gospel. That's the kind of mentality we have. Our mentality, generally speaking, in our North American subculture of Christianity is to see how well we can protect ourselves from anything harmful. Now, I don't mean be stupid and go out there and and uh, uh, make an, uh, a spectacle of yourself. Because I think that when it's time to suffer, it'll be clear. But when it's time to suffer, let's be faithful. Amen? Now, there is a sinister doctrine that was there. Now, I want you to look at the text in verse 14. I'll read this verse, but I have a few things against you. All right, and there'll be two specifically. And the first one is that you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, I'm going to talk about the doctrine of Balaam in just a second. But what I want you to notice is that they held to this doctrine. And what does that mean? That means that they... There was people within the assembly, in the church, who maybe didn't teach it, <coughs> but they had this as their philosophy. Now look, let your eyes dangle down, drift down to the next church, and you'll notice what it says in verse 20. You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach. Now that is a direct action of communication. Do you see the difference? In the first church, we are tolerating that which is contrary to the things of God. They're not, we're not allowing them to teach. We're not allowing them to get up and articulate it. But we're allowing it to exist. Such that when you get to the next church, Thyatira, this, this false doctrine business, this, this uh, uh, doctrine that's awry, is now becoming part and parcel of our regular teaching ministry. See how it expanded? Thus, it's very important for the church to actually deal with the issues of wrong theology at its roots. Because if you don't, it just gets bigger. And that's the lesson. So you have holds those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Fortunately, you do not, don't have to think too hard because it says in the very next line what it is who taught Balak. Now, Balak was the king of Moab. This is all coming to you from uh, Numbers chapters 25 through 31. King of Moab. And what did he do? Well, what Balaam did, what he was teaching, was he actually showed the king Balak how to cause the children of Israel to lose in a fight. And the way to lose in a fight that he taught him was extremely sinister. It wasn't like, okay, what you need is 10,000 soldiers on the left and 10,000 soldiers on the right. You need a decoy in the back. It wasn't like military strategy. It was getting them to fail morally. Thus, God, Yahweh, would judge them and they could not stand before their enemies. It was playing the people of God against God by getting them to disobey God. Actually, in, in reality, Balaam was very clever but is extremely sinister, right? This is what we have to be careful of, where the doctrines that we hold to, where we, we can distort it in such a way 
where it's like we're allowing the enemy to come through the back door. Now, you have to say, now, Steve, that's an interesting uh, concept, but does that really happen here? I mean, do we really have people with false doctrines in our meeting that we're tolerating? Probably not, right? And why don't we have that? Well, hopefully, your elders are on the job, right? Hopefully, you're on the job, right? Hopefully, you're thinking things through and, and, and you're analyzing stuff that you read, stuff on the internet, podcast. We can't monitor all of that. That's way too much. So what we need the saint to do is to be a good truth detector yourself, right? That's what you have to be. And when questions come up, then they need to come through the appropriate chain of command. Ladies ask their husbands, if you're not married, go ahead and talk to the elders. If it needs to come to the elders' level, of course we'll deal with it. Now, what are some of the things in the most recent years that have caused some doctrinal problems? Well, some of it has been in the uh, the age of the um, emerging church, you know, where the church was sort of dumbed down to be um, a thing, an entity where we wanted people to be um, user-friendly. And so we, we, you know, and the concept of God was changed and it wasn't true to what we call theology proper. And it panned out by people making their churches uh, very, very like, like shopping malls. And you would have Starbucks in the lobby and you would have, you don't have to bring your Bible because that's offensive and we'll just throw the Bible on the screen behind you. And you know, we can, and we won't really talk harshly about sin because you know, that might make you uncomfortable. I want you to know something here. We don't care if you get uncomfortable actually. I mean, it's the Spirit of God. Okay. Not, not us. And so that's that's how it was how it goes. Now there's a couple of other movements today. Some of them are old, right? Some of them happen to deal with Calvinist thinking or Arminian thinking. Both are equally, by how should I say, polar opposite and wrong. Um, then we have some things that have to deal today with the discipleship making movement, right? Now many aren't familiar with that, but it's actually the title of a book, DMM. And it, 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 it basically says that you begin to make a disciple before they're a Christian because really disciple means learner. So you can actually be teaching somebody the gospel, uh, and, 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 you know, they'll come to Christ. So far, that's not bad, right? And then they say this. So if they lead a Bible study before they're saved, you know, that's okay. And there you go, what? Wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? Because most of us in orthodox thinking is that, you know, you come to a point, you know Christ, then you follow Christ. But up to that point, according to like Romans, there's no stinking way you follow Christ. You're just going the wrong direction, right? And so we have this DMM movement. And believe it or not, it caused a huge rumble in the assembly world in the last five years that affected everybody. It affected Emmaus. It affected Emmaus worldwide. It affected CML. It affected DITP. It affected the entire Midwest. And how do I know that? Because I was getting phone calls about it all. All right? That's how I know that. And elders are calling and all this stuff. You see, we do have to be careful. But don't forget the principle. That which is sinister coming in the back door to subvert in such a way you know, King Balak, you don't need to do all that military stuff. All you got to do is get them to love sin. 
That's what he said. And this is what it comes out in the text. Look at what it says. He says to eat things, sacrifices to idol, and commit sexual immorality. So in this discussion, it would behoove you to go back and read the Numbers passage, 25 to 31, and recognize that when he told them that, what he basic, what Balaam basically did is he took the pretty women of Moab, a Midian specifically, and brought them and paraded them around so the men who were out in the field being military soldiers would kind of get lustful and be attracted to them. And then they would say, well, why don't you come over and just have some food? We got nice steak. I mean, beef is good, right? And so they come over, they'd eat, and you know, the, the, the boundary lines of military combat and, and friendships would develop, boundary lines would d- diminish, friendships would develop, and, and because, uh, there was a real sense of physical appetites that was gratified by this idolatrous food, it would naturally lead into immoral, uh, uh, improper physical relationships. And when that happened, they so compromised against God, that they were basically incapacitated soldiers and they were easy prey. Balak didn't have to shoot an arrow. The Lord sent a plague. Wow, that's that's really nastiness, isn't it? That's what we have to be careful of. That's that getting us to uh, go after that which is the physical, tangible appetites of our flesh feeding the flesh so that the flesh then dictates our theology. Listen to this. To compromise theology, Satan appeals to our physicality, our physical appetites. To reform physicality, you must have pure theology. You you mean to say that again? Satan will corrupt your theology by getting you to go after your physical appetites. That's what makes the arena of fantasized sexual sin, pornography or any variation thereof, it doesn't have to be videography, it can be written prose of scintillating affairs. If he can get you to buy into that, then what you'll do is you'll eventually get so tired of fighting that that temptation struggle that you'll just change your theology to match your failure. And guess what? That's exactly what Balak did. So if you're going to make it right, we have to come with a pure theology that reforms, that will impact our physical flesh. Does that make sense to you? That's the equation. And this is the equation that was attacked by Balaam. Now, there's other things in the Bible about Balaam, like Balaam's, whoops, Balaam's error and Balaam's way. Balaam's error was that, uh, or Balaam's way was that, no, excuse me, Balaam's error was that he thought he could, he could be hired out and be a spokesman for Yahweh. He wasn't even, I don't know where he got that idea. He was a prophet for hire, motivated by greed. That was Balaam's error. Balaam's way? Balaam's way was not just this doctrine, but was the whole idea of bringing to the equation, um, uh, how you can go about and foster victory, uh, uh or excuse me, how you can take another authority, and rule over someone else by this sinister activity. 
So those are interesting studies in the Bible. It's, it doesn't have, we don't have time to, to go to it. Nonetheless, this is what was happening. Now, tolerance is the main term, isn't it? Tolerance. We have to be careful of tolerating that doctrine. Many years ago, I was sitting, uh, with another Christian, um, and, and they, they had a lot of, um, um, patrons that were, um, a gay. And, and they were friends, you know, and it's very possible to be friends with those who are of that alternative persuasion. Uh, I had a surgeon friend. I thought he was an excellent surgeon. Uh, and yet, and yet of that persuasion. And sometimes, one time I was talking with this acquaintance and said, well, Steve, really, what's so bad about that? What is it? Is it I mean, they're happy, aren't they? And I've actually heard Christians today say to me, how come I'm miserable as a Christian, but they're doing the, the quote, wrong moral thing, unquote, and they're happy? You know, if you want to use that as your barometer, you're always going to come up with the wrong answer. We can't tolerate that. We have to be very careful of that kind of thinking. The axiom here is what I missed, just mentioned, compromise theology, Satan appeals to the physicality. We reform physicality by pure theology. Now, we also had a statement about the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which a thing which I hate. Again, it's difficult to say what that was. I have trouble thinking it was immorality because he just talked about immorality. So it seems like it should be something different. Therefore, uh, the only thing I can go to is the idea of the etymology of the word, uh, conquer the laity. And so there appears to be some hint that it's um, it's some sort of clergy, laity sort of system. I don't think you can be too dogmatic on it because it's a weak interpretation to use etymology, but when that's all you got, that's all you got, right? The point is not what the Nicolaitans were doing, it's that they hate, that Christ hated it. And if we start to do things which Christ hate, we are in the wrong. That's the key thing. I think you can substitute a lot of other things in there besides Nicolaitans. Christ hates it. That's good enough for me. Let's get rid of it. No tolerance. So there is a sense, you know, in our world today, they say we have no tolerance for violence. Well, you know what? We should have no tolerance for that which would compromise the doctrines of God. All right. Now I want to end. Oh, I'm sorry. I should end this. I think we'll be able to end this quickly. I want to end, um, tonight on his solution and his reward. He says, repent. There is, <coughs> excuse me, there is no other answer. Repent. You've got to change your mind on this. That, it's almost like a, a very sort of one-word answer. No. You know, when the child asks you something, you go, nope, that's not going to happen. Right? It's, it's very blunt. It's very direct. It's crisp. It's sterile. It's precise. And there is no other answer. Repent is the same idea. This is the only answer. We have to rethink, reconsider, retrace, reject the compromise, and reinstall the grace of God on the throne. That's what we need to do. So, so he says, you go through that. You repent in this way. I want you to know that means something to me. And what does it mean? Well, obviously, listen well from what the Spirit has to say. Let your ear take it in and adopt it as your own. I put those references up there because they refer to the obedience that follows from hearing the word of God. But then he sweetens the deal. 
And the things that sweetens a deal are this. He says, if you overcome in this situation, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. That's right. It says that in the text, right? Uh, to him overcomes, I'll give some hidden manna. That's in verse 17. Now, the idea of manna itself was bread from heaven that sustained life in a bad moment, in a desert, no, no Walmart situation. So this was a big deal to have that bread come down every day. If you didn't have that bread, you were going to die. And so this is what God was saying uh, uh, to the reference with the, by the reference of manna. But then he says it's hidden manna. Now what is that? I think that's a reference to Christ. Because in, in the, the manna that was collected in those days, back in, in the, uh, the days of the Exodus, they put a jar of it inside the uh, ark and it was hidden. It was special. It was preserved. And it reminded them not only of the rebellion, but God's provision. Now Christ comes in the New Testament and what does he say? Well, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. You actually read it with even greater explicit statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, when he actually says, Christ is our spiritual food. You don't have Christ, you don't survive. And what, he, what the Lord Jesus is saying is, I will make sure that you eat that special bread that is a very uh, intimate, hidden, special, held-back restaurant food just for you. It'll be private, and it'll be personal. That's what it is. To this day, there are Japanese, authentic Japanese and Chinese restaurants in which they'll have two menus. The menu you see, because we're Americans, and then the ones the Chinese see, the Japanese see. And if you could read Chinese or Japanese, Mandarin or Japanese, <laughs> you could order off that menu. But if you can't read it, you got to go to the other one. It's special. It's hidden. It's unique. And it's something the owner has just for you. This is, I think, the imagery God is saying, Christ is saying to us. This is just for you. It will, it will heighten the things that you know about me because we share something so special. No one else shares it. The intimacy and harmony and union with Christ will soar in your life if you overcome this in this tolerant situation. But there's more. He says, you'll have a stone. Look at what it says. A white stone. Now, there are three different images here. The first one is, if you were acquitted, that if you were uh, pronounced innocent in a court of law, you were given a stone. And that was your emblem of being right in the law, being uh, declared guiltless. Also, when you were a victor, victorious in the Olympic Games, you would be given the wreath. Everybody knows around that, the crown, the Stephanus. But you would also be given a stone, and it's a very honorable thing. It's kind of like your gold medal. Then, finally, there is terrera hospitalis. And what that is, is that there is a wealthy family that would give a stone to a, another family who... Uh, in special reception of them into their own home. They would be given that unique sort of um, a present. So if you came to live with the prices for a while, we, we would so uh, say to you, you are welcome to our home. We love you dearly. Here is a stone for you to commemorate the kind of bond that we have. Now, each of those are cultural references, and I think the Lord Jesus is saying they're all three important to me. I think he's saying, I will give you a special stone which will show that you're acquitted of all those false accusations that you're living under in Pergamos. 
I will will give you that victorious stone that happens from uh, uh, that you would get from the Olympic Games. I'll give you that because you were victorious by overcoming. And lastly, you should know that you will have a special reception by me, by Christ himself. I think all three of them are true. And he says that, listen, if you need motivation to get through this difficult time of tolerance, I want you to know I got motivation. I've got a hidden manna and I've got a special stone and look on it. It's got a name. It's got a name that you you and I are the only two that know it. It's a new name. Now, some say it's the name that comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. That's the Church of Philadelphia. But that name is public. This is a private name. Oh, there's another use of the word name in Revelation 19.12. And, and yet, uh, 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 that name, uh, the, uh, Christ knows that name, but in, in this, the recipient doesn't. And here, the recipient knows that name. So I don't think it's the same thing. I think the idea here is that it's a different name. It's new. That's the emphasis. It's a new name. A name that fits you. A name that matches your victorious demeanor because you overcame this situation. A name that indicates a change in your character into the image of Christ. That's why the Lord Jesus renamed some of his disciples. No longer will I call you Cephas, we'll call you Peter, right? This, this, this rock. And so he's saying by very, very, very clearly, he's saying not only does it reflect your character, it's reflecting what I will do with your life. He's going to give you that sort of hope and vision. So God in his way says to you, listen, you will have intimacy with me that has never been possible before. You haven't experienced it. Whether it be in a a white stone or a new name or hidden manna, we will be close, closer than you would have ever imagined. Saints, listen. In this church of Pergamos, just like us, we're faced with compromise. We're faced with tolerance of that which we should not tolerate. We have to be vigilant about some of the ideologies that are coming after us, especially the ideologies of let everybody have their way. Let, don't, don't, don't call anybody out, you know. I'm sorry, I don't call anybody out. The Bible calls me out. That's what happens. And when that happens, he's saying, you get into that sort of milieu where you're sort of justifying and, and allowing. I need you to get rid of that. I need you to repent. And what I need you to do is repent. And if you have trouble repenting just now, it'll heighten what we have together on the other side. And I think that's beautiful. That's the shepherding nature of Christ coming out, wooing you to himself, wooing you to obey him, wooing you, making you want to. Doesn't that sound like a great savior to you? Doesn't that sound like a great shepherd to you? Sounds like that to me. Sounds like a good shepherd and a chief shepherd. Well, may the Lord bless his word. Thank you for letting me go a little over here.